0: And then you just take a left, and the first book there is the book of Job, and you're going to have to go a few pages back until Job chapter 1. We're going to be in Job 1, and today we're going to be in verses 13 through 22. If you are just joining us for the first time, or maybe you've been visiting for a a little bit... um, First off, we want to welcome you here with us. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here at Faith Community Bible Church. And yes, we know that Thanksgiving is Thursday. And yes, we know that we are going to be in the book of Job this morning, reading one of the most impactful verses in all of Scripture when it comes to suffering. And it's going to be a little... um, Maybe difficult for us to grasp how we can go and transition from reading the book of Job and reading about Job's suffering and God's sovereignty over it all, and go right into Thanksgiving this Thursday, but if you just bear with me by the end of the sermon, especially at the end, we'll bring it full circle. And so this is our third week preaching the book of Job, um, and so far we've had an overview sermon, and we've had, um, last week we just got into the very first few verses of the book of Job, and so far two major themes have stood out to us. First is God's sovereignty, and we've defined sovereignty as a master, a Lord, one who possesses extreme authority, and with God we learned that there is no limit to his sovereignty. The second major theme has been Job's integrity, and we've seen that Job is a man of great integrity, one who uh, lives and acts in steadfast adherence to God's ethics, but is also sound, he is complete, and he is blameless before God. And so let's pray and let's open up with some prayer as we dive into this difficult text for us. Lord, we just uh, praise you and thank you for who you are. You are just an awesome God who deserves all the honor and glory and praise, and you deserve so much more than we give you. Lord, we just thank you um, for your word this morning as we got to hear it in a different language and as we get to open it up now. Uh, Lord, speak through me. Speak to us through your spirit. Convict us of where we're wrong and, and guide us in the way for us. And Lord, as we see with Job and as we see in our own lives, sometimes that involves suffering. And Lord, we often ask why, and sometimes we, we don't get a why. Um, but Lord, we pray that today we see that you are sovereign over it, and that we can trust in you. And we just pray all these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our, our sermon last week focused on two things, God's sovereignty and his integrity. First, we saw Job's integrity in verses um, 1 through 5, and then in verses 6 through 12, we saw God's sovereignty. And those same themes are coming up for us this week, except we're going to flip them. First, we are going to see God's sovereignty in the midst of Job's suffering, and then we're going to see Job's integrity in his response to that suffering. And so our passage starts off for us in verse 13, and we see that the account of Job resumes for us this morning, and it's an unsuspecting day. At first glance, it just seems like any other day. Verse 13 says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And if you were with us last week, you would have known that this is not an unusual day for Job and his family. It was made known to us earlier that they would typically hold a feast in each one of their houses on their day, Job's sons and daughters, and that today Job's sons and daughters are doing just that. They are gathered in his oldest brother's house for one of these feasts. And just like any ordinary day, Job, what he would have done is he would have waited for the feast to end. He would have woke up early in the morning and he would have made sacrifices for each of them according to the number of them all. And, and so Job is probably expecting to do that in the coming days or maybe the next morning. And he did this continually day after day whenever they would have a feast like this. So our passage this morning opens up just like any other day. Nothing seems out of the ordinary. However, as we'll quickly see, today is unlike any other day in the life of Job and even throughout history. This day is known as one of the greatest days of suffering for anyone who's ever lived. Because while this day appears very unsuspecting at first, uh, it's anything but. And on this day, we get to see that Satan, he planned everything out and he set everything in motion in just a few verses So last week in verse 12, we saw that God had allowed Satan to strike Job, but that God laid out one ground rule for Satan. He said, only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so in verses 14 through 19, as we're about to see, this is Satan's best attempt to strike Job, but he can't strike out his hand against him. Four calamities all happen, and they all happen simultaneously. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go quickly through each of these four calamities. We're going to identify the instruments or the agents that Satan used to bring these about. And then we're going to look back and we're going to see why Satan struck Job in this way. And we're going to see God's sovereignty over it all. The first calamity happens in verses 14 through 15. We see that it is a raid against Job's oxen and donkeys and servants. And for this, Satan uses a people known as the Sabaeans, Sabaeans were a nomadic group. They were known as marauders who pe- uh, primarily dwelt in southern Arabia. And so they're in the south, and they raid against Job. The second calamity is Job's, against Job's 7,000 sheep and his servants tending to them. And for this, Satan used the fire of God that fell from heaven. The fire of the Lord isn't just a term that's used here, but we also find it in your Bibles in Numbers chapter 11 when God punishes the Israelites. It's the fire of the Lord that fell from heaven and consumed the altar that Elijah had prepared on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 during that epic showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And it was also the fire of the Lord that came down and struck the 50 men and their commander sent from King Isaiah to Elijah. And so what is this fire of God? What is the fire of the Lord specifically? Well, we don't really know. Most scholars, they have a a good guess and most will say it's lightning. Others say it was a literal fire that came down. But in our passage, we see whatever it was, it came from the sky and it was powerful enough to annihilate all of Job's 7,000 sheep and all of his servants but one. So it was powerful. The third calamity that we see is a raid against Job's 3,000 camels and servants. By a people known as the Chaldeans. Now, if that word or that name Chaldeans rings a bell, it's because this is where Abraham came from. It's east in the region of Mesopotamia, and Job was likely to the west of it, and so these are people that came from the east. The last calamity was a great wind. And this calamity strikes Job and is the death of all of his children at once. And Satan used this great wind, and we don't really know what this great wind was. Most scholars agree it was either a tornado, or it could have even been straight-line winds. But remember who this is striking. This is striking Job's oldest son, his firstborn. And Job is a man who is seen as great in the east. He is wealthy, and so this wasn't just some shack. This wasn't a tent. This was a strong house. And it was a strong wind that tore it down. <clears throat> and we also see a, something different from Job's messenger who delivered this message to him. It says, behold, a great wind. All the other ones just start off with this calamity, but this servant says, behold, here. And so this emphasizes for us that this fourth calamity is the climax of Job's suffering. And it's not just the climax, but it is the one that it cuts the deepest as well. And so now when we look at these four calamities together, we will see four ways in which Satan struck Job. First, Satan struck by surprise. Second, Satan struck with precision. Third, Satan struck with variety. And last, Satan struck under God's sovereignty. First, Satan struck by surprise we have already talked about and seen that this was an unsuspecting day for Job. And we can also see that in these verses because Job has no idea of this impending suffering. When a nation or a person thinks an invasion is imminent or a massive storm is on the horizon, what happens? What happens when a snowstorm is coming up? Everyone goes to the stores and prepares and hunkers down. If an enemy was at the gates, you wouldn't send your livestock out into the fields, but you would bring them in. What do we see with Job? He sends everything out. It's just a typical day for him. Job was not expecting physical enemies to attack. He was not expecting fire from heaven. He was not expecting a great wind. Job is struck completely by surprise, without any signs, without any warnings. Satan struck Job by surprise. Second, we see that Satan strikes Job with precision. Satan knew when, where, and how to strike Job. Satan knows this world. He knows of the Sabaeans, he knows of the Chaldeans, he knows of Job, he knows of Job's children, and he knows of the greatness of Job. He studied Job as an adversary would study their opponent. He knew where to find all his possessions. He knew where to find all of his children, where they would all be together, and on what day to hit. And like how any, any enemy would take the time and wait for everything to come together at once to strike with efficiency, Satan did just that. He struck with great precision. We also see he just left one servant, one servant left out of everyone to just return and tell Job what had happened. Satan struck with great precision. Third, we see that Satan struck with variety. Satan used everything here at his disposal that he could to get Job. He used nations. He used the Sabeans. He used the Chaldeans. The Sabeans came from the south. The Chaldeans came from the east. We also see that Satan used natural phenomena against Job. He used a fire of God and he used a great wind Job wasn't just being struck from one side, but he was being struck from all sides. Satan's plan was not just to strike Job with precision, but it was to make Job feel as if he was being completely surrounded and choked off and being hit from every side. I know for some of us, when when one thing goes bad and then something else goes bad as well, we start to think, man, the world is against me. Well, on this day, Job must feel as if everything is against him because Satan struck with variety. And lastly, we see that Satan struck Job under God's sovereignty. God was sovereign over all of this suffering, and this may be hard for us to grapple with, but Satan could only do that which God had allowed him to do, and no further. Remember back to God's one rule that he had for Satan. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. No matter how much Satan wanted to, he could not reach out his hand and strike Job personally. So he did everything that he could under God's sovereignty to get Job to turn and curse God. And so Satan struck Job under God's sovereignty. Now remember Satan's challenge that we looked at last week, and this lie that Satan himself believes That Job is only faithful to God because of his great possessions, because of his great family, because of all of these material blessings in Job's life. And between these four calamities taking place and between Job receiving this news from his messengers and Job then reacting to it, I'm sure Satan thought he had defeated Job. I'm sure Satan thought that he had gotten the better of God. I mean, everything went according to plan. He struck Job with Great precision, he did it on an unsuspecting day. It was all by surprise. He used a variety of ways and everything fell into place one after the other. And it must have been overwhelming for Job to deal with. And so now Satan's lie has been put to the test. Will Job turn and curse God because of this? Let's see Job's response. Now we'll be in verses 20 through 22. With Satan's precision strike against Job complete, the question now is for us, what's Job going to do? How is Job, this man of great integrity, going to respond to this suffering? Will Job, as Satan believes, curse God because of his faithfulness to God was only put in his possessions and his physical blessings? Or will Job hold fast to his integrity and bless God despite losing all that he had had? Verse 20 is a verse all about Job's actions in response to suffering. In my English version, verse 20 is 18 words long. I'm not sure about yours, it may differ slightly. However, in the original Hebrew, verse 20 is only nine words long. And of those nine words, five of them are verbs. And of every single one of those five verbs, Job is the subject. And so we see that this verse is packed full with Job's actions in response to this suffering. The first of these three actions is that Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Tearing one's clothing and shaving one's head was a sign of deep mourning in Job's culture. This wasn't unusual for someone in his culture to do. The word used for shaving one's head is not the typical word used in the Bible to describe doing that. In fact, the word in Hebrew used to describe Job shaving his head is primarily used to describe the shearing of sheep. Pretty fascinating. Because there's plenty of other people in the Bible that have shaved their head. But this word really isn't used those times. In fact, there's only two other times that it's used In the Old Testament to describe of shaving one's head and both of those are prophetic passages and both of them call for the audience of that prophecy into a deep and mournful lament. Another aspect that we may not think about with Job shaving his head is that tearing a robe, you know, I could tear these clothes and it would take what, maybe a few seconds, maybe a minute if I struggled. If I was to stand up here and shave my head, shave my beard, that would take a long time. Shaving your head takes a long time, and it's therefore very deliberate and very intentional. And so through Job's actions, we see that his mourning was both raw and it was both deliberate. It was deep and it was fierce. This is the suffering that we see in Job. Now, the first three actions are very in step with anyone in Job's culture who would be suffering. These aren't out of the ordinary. And if Job was to turn and curse God, these three actions would probably still happen. But next, we're going to see two actions that demonstrate the integrity of Job and what God boasted all about. In the fourth and fifth actions, we see that Job fell to the ground and that Job worshipped God. Here we find some of the most incredible words in the book of Job, and not just the book of Job, but all of Scripture. How can a man who just lost everything In an instant, turn and worship God. This action of worship hasn't just shocked readers throughout centuries, it shocked Satan. After all his plotting, after all his scheming, he thought he had gotten the better of Job. In fact, the only one who wasn't shocked by Job's actions was God himself, Job's creator, the all-sovereign, the all-knowing one. Job's actions began by rising to mourn and ended with him falling to worship. And from Job, we see an example of how those who suffer are to worship God as blameless and upright before him, as one who fears God, as one who turns away from evil. Job gives us this amazing picture of how we should lament before him. And so now we've seen Job's actions in his initial response to suffering. And now we're going to look at Job's words in response to suffering. And verse 21 is all about God's, or Job's words in his suffering. Job says the phrase, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Here Job really acknowledges that even though he was considered the greatest of all the people of the East, filled with tons of possessions as we saw in chapter 1, in the first few verses there, that he did not bring any of these earthly possessions into this world. And that his earthly possessions are just that. They're earthly possessions. They are not eternal. Job came into this world without them and Job is going to leave this world without them. In his next words, Job brightly acknowledges God's sovereignty over all things. What does he say? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Notice what Job did not say here. Job did not say the Lord gave and Satan took away. Job did not say the Lord gave and the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans took away. Job did not say the Lord gave and the storm has taken away. No, Job said the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The sovereignty of God means that he is the giver of all things and he is also the taker of all things, including life. Everything we have in this life is a gift from God. The next breath that you take, the next meal that you eat, the next sip of water that you take, it's all a gift of God. He gives it, and He can take it away. He is sovereign over it all. And lastly, we see the crowning jewel of Job's words in the midst of suffering. He says... Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's final words here in verse 21 are a knockout punch to Satan and the lie that he told in verse 11. Satan said to God in verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. But here we see that Job does not curse God to his faith, and instead what Job does is he blesses God. You know, it's very easy to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I just said it right there. But as we go through the circumstances of life, when when things are going well for us, it's very easy to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. When a child is born, when we receive good news from a doctor, when we get a promotion. In fact, one of our first reactions to this may be, God, thank you so much. Or, praise God, this is amazing. But how many of us do the same upon hearing of bad news? When we get laid off. When we get bad news from the doctor. When a loved one dies. How many of us, not even just saying it, but think. Thank you, God. Praise God. God, blessed be your name. But that's exactly what Job does. And in doing so, he acknowledges that God is sovereign over both the good and the bad. God was, God is, God always will be the same. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And lastly, in verse 22, we see a summary statement of Job's initial response to suffering. You could almost call this verse Job's report card. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. At the beginning of the day, Job was known as the greatest of all the people of the East. Now at the conclusion of the day, one could say that Job was now the poorest of all the people of the East. Because what made him great in the world's eyes was all of his possessions and his family. And now he is without them all. All of them gone in an instant. His livestock, his servants, most of them. All of his children, gone in an instant. Some were annihilated. His children were crushed in a house. But in all of this, Job did not lose what God boasted about him, his integrity. He may have lost all his possessions, all the things that the world saw him as great for, but Job did not lose the thing that God saw him as great for, his integrity. And from this, we can see that God's values and the world's values are vastly different. For the Lord sees man, not as man sees man, but man looks on the outward appearance and the Lord looks on the heart. If Satan sees God or sees as God sees, Satan would not have accepted this contest to begin with. If Satan sees as God sees, he would have never have afflicted Job. He would have known he never stood a chance against Job and that it was foolish to do so. In Satan's eyes, in the world's eyes, what made Job the greatest of all the people of the East was his great possessions and his great family. However, in God's eyes, what made Job as a man that he would boast about was not his possessions or his family, but his integrity. Let's listen to God's words of his boasting of Job in verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil. What does God not mention in his boast of Job? He mentions nothing of Job's possessions. God doesn't boast about how great a businessman Job was. God doesn't boast in Job's wealth and how wealthy he was. God doesn't boast in Job's many possessions. He doesn't boast in the amount of land that he owned. God doesn't even boast in the size of Job's great family. What does God simply boast about, about Job? It's his integrity. And if Satan had saw that, he would have known that he never could have touched Job and made him curse God. Now, Job didn't know it, but he was being watched. Not by others in this physical world, but by the heavenly court. Job did not know why he was suffering. Job did not know why that God was boasting about him. Job did not know that Satan was lying about him. And Job did not know that you and I and billions of others throughout history would be able to read about his encounter. All that Job knew in that moment was that he was suffering, that it was painful, and that God was sovereign over all things. And that his God is worthy of worship. And so this morning, we get to then apply what we've learned into our lives, because we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of it as well. And the first thing I think that we can apply to our lives, and we see in the book of Job, is that God's sovereignty doesn't numb the pain of suffering. Job acknowledged God's sovereignty, probably better than any of us can do, way better than I could probably do, and yet he still felt the pain of this suffering very deeply. Job's faith in God did not take away his pain. Notice it doesn't say that when Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord, all of it was taken away, and as we'll we'll see next week, Job is going to be hit again, and the book of Job isn't just one chapter, but we have 42 chapters that we're going to look at. I know this is hard for us to wrestle with, but as Pastor Pat said last week, God in his mercy not only ordained suffering, but God also ordained salvation. And he has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world and f- to free us from our suffering, but he did so through his suffering. That if we would repent, if we would turn from evil, turn from our ways and leave the easy road behind and enter his narrow gate by putting our trust in him, that we would find rest for our weary souls. It reminded me of one of my favorite quotes of all times. This is from the 20th century Scottish minister, James Stewart, speaking of Christ. He says, the very triumph of his foes he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his end, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing but that by doing so, the very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it into a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had defeated God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless, and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil, but he conquered through it. God not only ordains suffering, and is sovereign over it, but God also ordains salvation. As we gave our um, affirmation of faith this morning, we saw that it was God's perfect will for Jesus to die for our sins, because our sins demand punishment. And God, in his sovereignty, stepped out of the eternal glory of heaven and stepped down into this world as we get to celebrate in Christmas. And he lived in this world perfect, and blameless, and upright. Job points us to Christ in that way. But Job, being a person who was born of man and woman, was sinful in his heart, and Satan, or (laughs) Jesus, was not. And so we see with Christ someone who came into this world spotless and blameless, and suffered even more than Job suffered. And it was God's perfect sovereignty that brought about salvation. And so, if you have not known of this salvation that comes from, Christ, please come up and see me. Please come up and see one of the elders. And if a friend brought you, please talk to them about it because we would love to be able to share this with you. And now I just want to bring it back to what we talked about at the beginning. Thanksgiving's this Thursday. How in the world can we read Job here on Sunday? and then go and celebrate Thanksgiving this Thursday, thanking God for everything that he has given us in this world. I think we have a great example in history. In the first Thanksgiving, the pilgrims arrived. What year did they arrive? 1620. That following year in 1621, they celebrated the first Thanksgiving in Massachusetts. Now when they arrived, there was 102 of them, men, women, and children that came aboard the Mayflower. When it was time to celebrate that first Thanksgiving that they decided to, how many of them were alive? Half. Only half of them had survived that harsh winter. In fact, during that winter, it's estimated that 78% of their women died. Disease went rampant throughout the colony, great suffering occurred, I'm sure, famine as well. 102 to 51 in one year. And they decided we're still going to worship God. And so during that harvest, that fall, they threw a three-day feast in which they thanked God for bringing them through that last year. They celebrated the harvest. They celebrated God, even in the midst of great suffering. Now, this is a big ask, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Can you, this year, as you celebrate Thanksgiving, be able to thank God for the good things, of course, but also for the things that caused you to suffer this past year. As we analyze all the ways that God and his sovereignty brought things into our lives, both good and bad, can we say, thank you, God, praise God, blessed be your name for both the things that we consider good and both the things that we consider bad? Because God is sovereign over it all, in the good and in the bad. Let's pray. Lord, we praise your name right now. Lord, we are people who know of suffering, as each of us I'm sure has suffered in our own ways as you and your sovereignty has have given out. And Lord, we suffer by different ways, sometimes by people, friends, loved ones cutting us down, maybe enemies attacking us. Lord, we also suffer naturally in this world. Maybe it's disease, maybe it's shortages of things. Lord, you are sovereign over it all. Lord, may we look to Job here and see his great integrity and say, wow, there is an example. And may we look to Christ and his sufferings as one who didn't deserve at all to suffer, who suffered on our behalf. And may we say, oh, what an even better example. And thank you, Lord, for salvation through Christ. Lord, we pray that this Thanksgiving we may not just look at the things that we consider good, the things that we may see as blessings from You, but Lord, may we acknowledge that all things are from You. Lord, even in the sufferings, You are sovereign, and we trust in You. And we pray all these things in Your Son's name, Jesus Christ, Amen.